Hello, it's Brian Sorgenfry, the RUF uh, recording started a little late, so know that much of tonight is in thanks to Ricky Jones and a sermon he preached on this, but this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, let's look at three things together that Paul describes as this fight. The feel of the fight, then the enemy and the location of the fight, and finally, the armor for the fight. Alright, first, the feel of the fight. Look at verse 10 through 12 on your handout. Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord, to put on the armor of God so that we might stand against the devil. But he tells us that we wrestle. Think about that word, that we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. Just think about the way that the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life. He characterizes it as a battlefield. That's like hand-to-hand combat. Which means Paul is saying that the Christian life feels like an up-close, intense, exhausting battle. And that's my first question. Does that surprise you? Do your expectations of the feel of the Christian life actually square with what the Bible says? Do you expect the Christian life to be an exhausting fight? Or do you expect it to feel like a walk in the park? Happiness and easy. I probably, uh, on Spun- uh, Monday night, spent uh, my night in some ways like you did. Uh, if you were paying attention, right? There were tornado sirens that went off. And uh, I, actually, I kind of ignored those in college, which I shouldn't have. But now that I have kids, you're forced to pay attention. And so... Me and my kids, you know, it's 9.30, we're all in this, this closet. And you remember those days as a kid, you think that's awesome, this is fun. And uh, parents think it's terrible because you're just ready to get to bed. Well, the interesting thing happens during, during, during a big storm, during whatever, maybe a tornado. I'm actually expecting that the power might go out. And so at like 9.45, when I realize that the power is still on, I'm actually really excited about that. I'm delighted. But reverse the situation. If it had been a calm day, a normal day, and the lights go off and the power goes off in my house, I'm like a prima donna. Like I'm ticked. I act like there's just this huge suffering. Like how in the world could my power be off? This is ridiculous. But I expect it to go off in a storm. So if it did, it doesn't surprise me. And see, that's how it works. What are your expectations for what the Christian life is going to feel like? Do you think it's a storm... Do you think it's a fight or do you think it's peace? Because I think a lot of times, especially in college, I I think you're surprised. I think we're surprised by the struggle of following Jesus. 
that things like loneliness, anxiety, depression, dark circumstances like death and suffering that surround us, our immediate conclusion is something has gone horribly wrong. There's no way that God's at work in this. There's no way that I'm following Jesus. Because we expect it to be like a park rather than a battlefield. Or when you struggle with your own addictions. When you find that you've done things in college that you never thought you would do. Or you give in to that temptation more than you thought. When insecurities begin to overwhelm us, we think, I guess it's off the rails. Like There's no way I'm a follower of Jesus. But my question is, what if your expectations are wrong? What if you expected following Jesus to feel like a playground when Paul is saying it feels like a battlefield? The problem isn't the circumstances or what's going on. The problem is our expectations. And so I would just say be encouraged. If there's conflict in your life, if you're tempted sometimes to despair, it might actually be because you're alive. You're in the battle. So first, he says... That it's really a fight. And that's what the Christian life feels like. And that's why it is damaging that if the only testimonies you hear about the Christian life are those that sound like, I used to have problems and then I found Jesus and everything went away. That's just not true. That's why if there's ever anybody on the circle that is preaching a gospel that says, I haven't sinned in 10 years, it's a false gospel. I promise. Because once you meet Jesus, the war with sin has begun. The fight is on. And so first, he describes the feeling of the fight. And second of all, he says there's a real enemy. Right? Verse 11 through 12. He identifies the enemy that if you're a Christian tonight, the one that wants to make you miserable and lonely and defeated and to ruin you is, verse 11, the devil. Verse 12, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. Because it kind of depends on where you are. That might seem incredibly anti-intellectual. That someone is up here as a college graduate that's talking about supernatural forces of evil. But here's here's what I'd submit to you. I think the Bible has the most nuanced, multifaceted view of evil that you'll interact with. Because look, we live in a modern Western culture that tends to say everything can reduce, be reduced to what you can see, touch, and feel. That's the only thing that's true. Only thing that can be scientifically verifiable. Just realize that's an incredibly narrow, that is a narrow outlook on the world. Because most of present cultures around the world and almost all of past cultures absolutely believe in supernatural evil. It's only a very recent scientific revolution that makes people condescend and say there's no way they're supernatural. So it's very culturally narrow narrow to say that. But also the Bible says it's just not simple. It's not just your environment that that plays a part. It's not just your genes that that plays a part. It's not just your choices. It's not just supernatural stuff. The Bible says there's evil inside of me. There's evil out there and there's evil up there. And involved in everything, there really is this spiritual unseen person named the devil, Satan, who's not a mythical figure. He's a real being. And he has a host of spiritual forces with him that hate Jesus. And he hates grace. And he hates what Jesus is about. And so he hates God's creation. And he especially hates God's image, which is you and me. That's who the enemy is. 
And so there, there really is something that is behind the sex trafficking, that is behind the racism, that is behind the evil. It's this unseen agent of evil work called Satan. Of course, it embodies itself in flesh and blood sometimes, but there is something more going on. And here's why it's so important to recognize what Paul is saying. Because if you don't know the enemy that you're fighting against, you'll be lost. Right? My kids do this all the time. That my kids will decide to play me in basketball or soccer. Right? So two on one, three on one. And it doesn't take five minutes before they start fighting each other. Right? It becomes a competition between them. You know, you took, you took the ball. You, you took my shot. And I just have to stop them and say, you're on the same team. Like, quit fighting each other. You're supposed to be playing me. But as long as they're fighting each other, honestly, they really don't have a chance to beat me anyway, right? But they really don't have a chance uh, if they're going to fight each other. And Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, listen to what he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of darkness. That means this, Christian, if you're a Christian tonight, your enemy is not your enemy. That's flesh and blood. Your roommate is not that girl in your sorority that drives you crazy. Your enemy is not the LGBTQ community. That's flesh and blood. Your enemy is certainly not immigrants. It's not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not fill in the blank. Whatever fear-mongering has been put before you, that's not your enemy. Those things are flesh and blood. Those are people that are supposed to be loved and cared for and befriended and welcomed. And a lot of people, honestly, feel like the church is fighting against them rather than loving and serving them and is doing tons of damage. Of course we oppose evil. Of course we do. And of course it may be manifested through flesh and blood, but our enemy is Satan. That's who we're fighting against. And so where does that fight happen, though? Where does this demonic fight happen? This is what I think is so interesting. Ephesians 6... These commands to be aware of the spiritual forces, it follows right after the commands of Ephesians 5 of marriage, of Ephesians 6 of how to raise your kids, how to be in the workplace, which means the spiritual battles that are going to happen in your life are not in these big mountaintop experiences. They're in your everyday Monday parts of your life. The spiritual battles happen as you go to class, as you try to get along with your sister, as you try to figure out how to love your friends. Why? Because that's where Jesus treads. Jesus is at work in the ordinary mundane because His grace changes everything. And so Satan hates the ordinary mundane. Satan always wants you to think that the big battle, the real change is coming one day down the road. But it's here. In the ordinary way that you try to get along with people. And so as we establish that the Christian life, it feels like a fight. There's an enemy who hates us. And it's in the ordinary mundane parts of life. He says, so you've got to be prepared. And he gives us armor. What is the armor of God? This is how we'll begin to close. Verse 10 through 20. So this is where we're tempted. We hear, okay, there's, a, there's an enemy. I know the fight's going to be my everyday part of life. I'm ready. Let's be strong. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God. And many times what we do is we give a head nod towards Christ. And then we make the Bible all about me. Like, this is my battle. But realize, it doesn't say put on the armor of Brian. It doesn't say put on the armor of fill in the blank. It it says God's armor. It's his armor. 
And see, verse 10 is just a summary of verse 13 through 17. Everything that Paul tells you in the instructions of the armor is to be strong in the Lord. It's in the strength of Jesus' might. It's all about finding strength in Jesus. It's about looking away from yourself to Him. So here's the key. You want to know what the armor of God is. The the number one principle of right interpretation is how do I know what Scripture says? You ready? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. If, 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 If some part of Scripture is addressed and another part of Scripture, let it interpret it. It's all God's Word. This is not the first time that God's armor comes up. If you go back to Isaiah... Isaiah talks about the armor of God. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59, which is talking about the coming of Jesus. You ready? Listen to this description. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 59. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What's the point? It's this, that Paul calls it the armor of God because it's God's armor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills this prophecy. The reason it tells you to put on, put on the belt of truth is because it's God's truth. It's Jesus' breastplate of righteousness. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. It's God's word. Paul is just telling you in the end to put on Jesus Christ. To be in Him. To rest in Jesus' finished work that He's done for you. The fight, this is why He says stand, is by looking away from yourself to Jesus. So all I want to do is run through these parts of the armor and show you that it's about Jesus. Because the number one lie that... Here you go. The number one lie that Satan tells you, and this lie is as old as the Garden of Eden, is this. You are not enough. Jesus is not enough. And because you're not enough in Christ, you need to go get something else. That's the lie. You're not complete in Christ, so you need to go get success. You're not complete in Christ, so you need to go get approval. You're not complete in Christ, so you need to go get money. That's the lie that Satan says. And what Paul says is, no, put on Christ. Jesus is enough. That's it. So he says, put on the belt of truth. Verse 14. What is Satan called in the Bible? Satan is the father of lies. He will always come at you and he will, he'll try to distort the truth of the gospel. He'll try to distort Jesus' unending love for you. And he'll say things like this. He'll point to your life and he'll say, There's, there is no way God loves you if your life looks like this. There's no way God loves you if your parents are divorced. There's no way that God loves you if you're about to graduate, your, your future still seems murky. There's no way God loves you if you're lonely. There's no way that God loves you if your life looks like this. You wouldn't feel this sad. And the belt of truth which holds your life together, the prevailing truth of the gospel that you wear is this. God sent his son for me. Jesus has lived and died for me. If God crushed his son on a cross so that I could be his, there is no way that he has ceased to love me. I may not understand the circumstances that are going on in my life, but it can't be because he's quit loving me. It can't be that. I know he's near. I know he's walking with me through them. Jesus loves me with depression, with a murky future, with my sadness. Jesus is enough. And that gospel truth, it kills Satan's lies. 
Then Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because Satan is not only called a liar, he's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. Which means that what Satan will do, he will come at you and he will target your unworthiness of a Christ, as a Christian. He will accuse you day and night and bring up the things that you do or don't do that you're supposed to do. And he'll say, see, you don't deserve God's love. There's no way that God accepts you. He'll say things like this. You can't call yourself a Christian. Not with the sexual immorality in your life. No way. You know, he'll say, maybe guys struggle with porn, but not females. If you're a female and struggle with that, there's no way you're a Christian. He'll say, uh, you can't... Str-. He'll say, Christians don't struggle with same-sex stuff. Satan wants you to think that your acceptance before God, that his love for you is dictated by your performance. Because that's a lie. Because when you put on the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness, you know what you say? You say, you're right. I've never been worthy of God's acceptance based on my own performance. Never. My righteousness has never been good enough. I probably don't know half the sin that I've done. I'm accepting the love not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm accepted because Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly for me, not based on how well I'm following Jesus. It's never been about my righteousness. And when I hold up Jesus' perfect righteousness to Satan's accusations, he's got nothing. Because he has a perfect record. Jesus is enough. He tells us to put on the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. Why? Because verse 15, Satan always comes at you and he makes God's commands sound like they're ridiculous. You know what Jesus calls the Pharisees? He calls them children of Satan. You know why? Because the Pharisees made God's law seem like it was burdensome. Seem like it was ridiculous. Seem like it will drain your life. And one of Satan's strategies is to make it seem like God gives you these commands and and there are fences around amusement parks. Like God is just setting up these laws saying, I just, you know, I just need to keep you away from all the fun and see if you really love me. And so Satan wants you to think that God is at war with you, that he's against you, that his commands are against you. But when you put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel at peace, it means that you look at Jesus. And you see that Jesus went to the cross in my place. He took the wrath of God for me. If Jesus took all the hostility that was due for me, that means I am at peace with God. No matter how I feel. And when I see that God's commands are from the heart of Jesus, and He's that good, I can trust that His commands are actually good for me. That they're not burdensome. And that enables you to actually walk in obedience because you see the one who's behind the commands, which is Jesus, who is for you. And so you begin to sacrificially love other people. Then Paul talks about the shield of faith, verse 16. Because Satan, he does not want you to look at Jesus. Satan wants you to stare at yourself. Satan wants you to stare at your own faith and consider if it's good enough. Because you know what? Your faith probably isn't good enough. But Jesus is. But see, think of that image of a shield. My my Old Testament professor talked about this. A shield has served you well in battle. If your shield is, is dented and bloodied, that means it took the blows. If your shield is clean, you're probably dead. And see, our shield is a bloodied, crucified Savior named Jesus who took the assaults of Satan. 
and took the penalty of sin so that I can be safe. And your faith is not in your own faith or in your own ability. Your faith is in a crucified, risen, resurrected, and ascended Savior who has defeated Satan. And he took the penalty of sin and he's destroyed its power and he defeated death. The object of your faith is Jesus. That's the point. Who cares how weak or strong your faith is? If it's in Jesus, you're secure. And then he says the helmet of salvation, verse 17. The helmet protects your head, your thinking, your memories, right? Your conscience. Satan wants you to forget everything that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He wants you to set your mind on the things of the flesh. In other words, he wants you to think that the outcome of your life is just up to you. That the only person who looks out for you is you. But the helmet of salvation says no. Christ has already won. He paid the penalty of sin in full. Once you were dead, now you're alive. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You're with Jesus. Remember, this fight will not go on forever. He is one. There's a future salvation guaranteed. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. So you can keep standing and fighting. And then, he gives us one offensive weapon. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because the promise is not just that the kingdom of God will stand. The promise is that the gates of hell will not stand against it. That the kingdom is advancing. And the weapon that he gives, this is is fascinating. The weapon that he gives to advance his kingdom, it's the word of God. Honestly, that seems so weak. It's not clever arguments and not signed wonders. It's not flashy presentations. But darkness will be transformed to light by the foolishness of preaching, by the reading of God's Word. Why? Not because we worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. But the Bible is revelation of Jesus. It's all about Him. It's not first first and foremost a rule book of personal transformation. It's about what Jesus has done for you. So here's the shameless appeal. One of the best things you can do is show up at RUF every week. And set under God's preached word, the kingdom of darkness is being transformed by his light. And he ends with this call to prayer of verse 18. He says, at all times, in all places, pray. Why? Because prayer is this posture of dependence before God. That through the Holy Spirit, I just, I'm in need. That prayer is recognizing my weakness, that... Unless God goes to work, unless Jesus defends me, unless Jesus holds on to me, unless Jesus never lets me go, I will ruin myself today and so. I'll do it. I will hurt other people. And so through prayer, you acknowledge your dependence on the lover of your soul, who's the high king of heaven and rules and reigns, and so you stand firm in him. And it's through prayer you realize, I have everything that I need in Jesus. He is enough. I lack nothing. I've been bought by His blood. I've been resurrected by His power so I can be weak. I can serve. I can confess. I can forgive. I can repent. I can sacrifice. I can be weak because Jesus is enough. So, I'll end here. The great evangelist, and I really mean this. I've used this quote before. The great evangelist, Dwight Moody. He has a very famous quote. And sometimes people will use this quote as kind of a... Way to manipulate people into obedience or something. Here's what Dwight Moody said one time. He said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. 
And by God's help, I aim to be that man. Hear what he's saying? The world's never seen what God can do with one person fully devoted to God. I'm going to be that man. Dwight Moody is awesome. And that quote is complete crap. You know why? Because the world has seen what God can do with one man fully consecrated to God. His name is Jesus. And he saved the world. And what that means is you don't have to. Jesus defeated sin. He took down the power of it. He defeated death by his resurrection. He defeated Satan on the cross. And because Jesus has lived a perfectly consecrated life that achieved that victory, you don't have to. You're just supposed to stand in his work, in his victory, which means you can be weak. It means we can fail. We can stumble. Because I stand in his work and not my own. Today, tomorrow, and 10,000 years from now. And isn't that good news? Like, I know you're tired. I know it's the end of the semester, and all that you've been told is be involved in everything, be, be a better version of you, make the most of your time. You're exhausted, and you're tired, and you're despairing, and you keep just trying to grab it more because you just feel empty. And there are lots of versions of Christianity that just says, pile on a few more things, and you'll be satisfied. But Paul ends his letter by reminding you that salvation has been accomplished. Just rest in his work. Jesus is enough. Put on the armor of Jesus' work and stand in his victory. The call to come to Jesus is not a call to get your life together. It's a call to rest in Jesus' work. I don't know if that sounds crazy. It's so contrary to the way our culture works. But did you notice the irony at the end? Paul says, verse 20, he's in chains. Paul, a symbol of weakness... To everybody in the world, it looks like Paul's losing. He's chained up and he's going to be executed by the Roman Empire. But here we are, 2,000 years later, Oxford, Mississippi, considering his letter. And the Roman Empire is long gone. Because through Paul's weakness, he held on to the strength of Jesus. And the world's being transformed through it. That's the offer tonight. We make this offer every Wednesday night. I'm not persuading you tonight to make bigger and more courageous sacrifices to Jesus. I'm just asking you to receive the gift of God the Father who sacrificed His Son for you. Rest in that. And that's the armor of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Um, We don't have the strength. We don't have the righteousness. We don't have the goodness uh, to stand before your gaze. Uh, We need Jesus. We need to put on Christ tonight so that we can dispel the lies of Satan, so that we can um, stand up to his accusations and embrace the fact that Jesus really is enough. And so I pray that if there are those out here who have not tasted the goodness of Jesus, they would receive that tonight. I pray that those who do know you would stand once again in the finished work of Christ and know that you hold this. In your son's name I pray. Amen.